Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh continues his series in the book of Romans. In this sermon, we are shown that as believers, we are counted as crucified with Christ and legally dead to sin. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6 as Pastor Josh delivers his message titled, United with Christ and Dead to Sin. Uh, chapter 6. Let's read the first seven verses here, and then we'll pray and ask for God's grace on our study. So please join with me in verse 1 here. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Let's pray. Uh, Our merciful God, please give us the grace that we need right now, O Lord, that our time of thinking on your word would be beneficial, would would be worship, O God. I want to worship in the preaching, and I pray we will all worship, O Lord, in the receiving of your word. Stir our affections for you. Cause us not to be cold, numb, lifeless creatures who just sit here. Um, There are glorious things here. And I pray, God, that you would give us the ability to be able to see them, to be able to understand them. Um, Father, that you would send your spirit to do what only you can do, not only to show light on the word so that we're able to mentally comprehend it, but Lord, to go deeper than that, that the miraculous transformations that you bring by your word, the miracles that need to happen. Father, we pray that you work them. So Lord, we are completely helpless and we need to know that, but we confess it. We're completely helpless before you. We need your grace. So please come now. We're we're your sons and daughters drawing near. We're bowing before you and praying, speak, O Lord, show us your word, teach us through your scriptures, O God, that you've given. And Father, I pray that we would come to worship and respond in right repentance, conviction of sin where it needs to happen, joy where we should see, joy glorying in this salvation you've brought, O Lord. So help us to see it all, help us to heed it, Help us to leave here changed and then to live lives, O Lord, that show the change. Change our thinking and then change, O God, our lifestyles and uh, obedience, Lord. So please bring it. Everything that needs to happen, please give that grace now, O God. We ask it all for your glory and through the name of Christ. Amen. Well, let uh, let me kind of catch us up to speed here on what we're ready for. We started chapter six and we've done two sermons as an introduction to the subject that uh, takes up chapter six, the the big doctrine that is going on in chapter six. Chapter six is kind of its whole unit and the subject is sanctification. We saw the first five chapters of the book of Romans explaining to us the subject of justification, okay? Justification is that when we turn to Christ in faith, we are pardoned of our sins. We are forgiven of our sins. Therefore, we receive eternal life because we've been made right with God. The most biblical way of saying it, and this is the definition that we need to kind of like get memorized so that when we read the word justification, it's the first thing that comes out. The biblical definition is counted righteous in Christ by faith. Counted, I'm not actually righteous, 
but God regards me. He recorded it as righteous. He, he reckons righteous. He credits me with righteous. We're counted righteous before God in Christ. So we saw the first five chapters teach that. Um, we cannot understand justification unless we understand that we need to be. So the first three chapters were God showing you, you're not good, you're not okay. Apart from Christ, you really are facing an eternity of hell. Here's the answer that God has brought. Jesus died for sins, rose from the grave, so that all who will turn to him in faith will be saved. We will be justified. And then once a believer has been justified, once that moment has happened, the act of being pardoned by God, once it occurs, God then begins a work of transforming the Christian, transforming this new creature made in the image of Christ. And this work of transforming, that's what sanctification is. And so chapter six is all about this subject right here. But I wanna, I wanna start then working through the text. So we've done two sermons that are kind of introduction to sanctification. Here's what it is. Here's how it happens. Here's the necessity of it. This week we begin working through the argument, the logical laying out reason that is here in chapter six. Because once again, okay, it's laid out as a logical argument. It's shown to us in, in premises and then reason that that's worked out here. So let me kind of show you the way that it flows. The whole chapter is, is answering the question that verse one gives. If we're not saved by works, not by your goodness, not by any righteousness that you have, we're saved as a gift. That's, it's grace. We're saved by the grace of God through faith. Well, if that's the case, and it's not dependent on me being good, then does that mean I don't need to worry about goodness or obedience or I can just sin how I please. If I'm saved by grace, not by works, and once I'm saved, justification is a moment. You are promised eternal life. So once that happens, does that mean I can just do whatever I want? Verse two answers it with, may it Never be. I would have loved to have heard Paul's tone when he said that. I, I almost anticipate a little bit of a smart alecky, snippy kind of tone. May it never be, like you implied, you idiot, okay? Like, because it is one of the strongest ways in first century Greek to object to something. It's almost like Paul found the thought disgusting. Like, don't you dare even say that. May it never be that we would live in sin or the idea that God's grace would promote sin. So, no, <laughs> and here's why. The rest of the chapter explains five reasons why the justified Christian cannot live a pattern of willful sin. The justified Christian cannot live a pattern of willful sin. Now, listen, ch chapter seven is incredibly important as well. And when you read chapter six, we really ought to read chapter seven together. They, they belong together. And, and the reason why is chapter seven, one of the things that happens is the apostle Paul, who is more sanctified probably than any of us here will ever be, talks about the struggle of the, of the Christian striving to obey God. It talks about the fact that trying to obey God is frustrating. It talks about the fact we fall to sin. The, the, the justified Christian wants to obey God, is striving to obey God. We make progress, but we are going to fall to sin. And so if you read chapter six, which is all about make progress, be sanctified, obey God, you're slaves of righteousness without reading chapter seven, it would be possible to come to great discouragement because you look at your life and go, well, what's wrong with me? You know, I'm not doing it perfectly. Well, chapter six tells us the need and the necessity. And then chapter seven comes along with kind of saying, well, it is hard and we're gonna fall. But one of the things we see chapter six teaching is we cannot live a life of willful sinning. 
And so we see this then begin to be brought out. Chapter six shows this. We cannot live a life of willful sinning. And here's why five reasons. If you're a note taker, it's maybe going to be kind of a complicated <laughs> note taking day because I'm going to try to show you the outline of the whole chapter here. And then there's sub points, side points. It's going to be confusing. It's going to be okay. Five reasons why we cannot live in willful sin. Number one, in verse two, so this is for you justified Christian, you have died to sin. Reason number one, you have died to sin. Now, what does that mean? Well, all through verse seven, he explains what that means. And that'll be part of what we talk about today. But first you just need to see that's the reason that's given. Reason number two, why you cannot live in willful sin. Verse eight, because you are alive in union with Christ. And then he explains what that means. Reason number three, why the justified Christian cannot live in willful sin. In verse 14, you are no longer under law, you are under grace. So we're no longer under that covenant of works. We're under the new covenant of grace. Reason number four, you cannot live in a pattern of willful sin. Verse 18, because you are no longer slaves to sin. You are now a slave of God. Give you a chance to write that one down. And then reason number five, why we cannot live a pattern of willful sin in verses 17 to 23, that whole section there, we are shown, we are called to be sanctified. So those will be, that's how the chapter's laid out, okay? Can we live in pattern, a pattern of willful sin? No, here's five reasons why. That'll be what we study in the coming weeks. This morning, the plan is to work through the first point in the first seven verses, so long as we're able to make it through. So the first one is, you have died to sin. Now, let me show you some more here. There's a pattern in this chapter that's used in other parts of the Bible as well. It's one of those parts that, like, once you see it, you're like, man, this is, this is genius. The Bible's not only true, it's, it's genius, okay? It's the infinite wisdom of God being revealed to us, beyond us. But it's one of those parts that when you read, you're just like, this is, this is good. It's what we refer to as indicatives and imperatives. can sound confusing, but it's, it's not. Another way of saying it is this. God explains reality. A lot of the Bible is God just saying, here's how the world is. Here's how I made it, okay? Here's how marriage is. Here's how sex is here's how the world actually is. Here's who you truly are. You know, orange is orange, two plus two equals four, okay? He's declaring what is. And then there are commands and instructions that come out of that. So God will just say, here's what's true. And now because of that, here's what you do. An indicative is when somebody just declares reality. Here's an example. The door is closed. Okay? That's an indicative statement. It's not saying that the door should be closed or the door should be open. It's just declaring reality. It is closed. An imperative is if somebody says, close the door or open the door. It should be closed. It ought to be open. Something like that. Here's an example of the two coming together. It's freezing outside, indicative, so the door should be closed, imperative reality, and then a command given out of that reality. All right. If you're hiking out West and somebody says, there's a bear behind you. Okay. They haven't told you what to do about it yet. They've just informing you of reality. Okay. It's up to you what you're going to do. Okay. Run, shoot, or play dead. But one way or the other, they have declared reality. A lot of times in the Bible, God just simply declares reality and not right then does he say, now go do this thousand things from that. He's just telling you, this is what is. God is holy. God is jealous. Here are some examples at work biblically. The world thinks of sex in a certain kind of way. The world thinks of sex that it is no big deal. It's just a physical act. Who cares? Go do whatever you want. You know, it's just sex. So they have a belief about it. And therefore, here are the instructions, ramifications, their instructions that come out of these things. Go do whatever. It doesn't matter. It's just sex. But in the Bible, 
God explains the reality that sex is more than just a physical act. Sex is actually the thing that unites a husband and wife in the covenant of marriage. God created it to be powerful and meaningful. That's the indicative. That's how the world is. Therefore, all of the instructions that come in the Bible about God's commands regarding sex come out of this reality. So there's the indicative, and then there are the instructions. Ephesians 5, another example. That section on marriage that we're familiar with, it declares the statement, a husband is the head of his wife. That's not a command. The passage doesn't say, husbands, go be the head. It just says, you are. And then it gives instructions that come and flow out of that reality. This is how God made the world. God created marriage. The husband is the head of a wife, whether a marriage wants to acknowledge it or not. Even for the feminist who hates it, her husband is still her head. That's the indicative. That's how God made the world. So then God gives instructions. Husbands are commanded to lead their wives to holiness. Why did God not say wives are to lead their husbands to holiness? Husbands are to provide for their wives. Why does it not say wives are to provide for their husbands? Wives are commanded to submit to their husbands. Why is it not said that husbands are to submit to their wives? All of it is because of the indicative. Here's how God made the world. Therefore, instructions flow out of it. So realities and command. Are you with me so far? All right. Let me show you where we see this in this passage. The answer is, it's everywhere. The whole passage is laid out like this. So here's the first one. You Christian, you have died to sin. You have died to sin with Christ. It's a reality that exists even if you never knew about it before. Even if until just this very moment, it's the first time you ever heard of it. If you were justified at five years old, you have died to sin. Something has happened legally. Something has happened in your standing with God. And then therefore it follows with imperatives that flow out of that. So here are instructions that come from that. You have died to sin. Therefore, look down to verse 11. The passage has numerous places where instruction, a therefore is given. Verse 11, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. In other words, you are. So make your thinking match the reality of what God has done. Verse 12, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. You have died with Christ. Therefore, get your thinking in line with that. And therefore, let's bring change to our life so that sin doesn't reign because you are dead to sin. Okay, so that's how the passage is laid out. What chapter six is doing this is beautiful, is it's actually explaining more of what happened to you at justification that the first five chapters didn't mention. And then it tells us how those things affect how we live. So here is more of what happened in your justification. Five more things that have happened to you in your standing with Christ and then how it affects how you live. So let me point these out to you. So if you're taking notes and you want to jot these down, let me point out to you the indicatives. So the statements of reality that are in this chapter. I see eight of them. So number one, again in verse two, we have died to sin. Now, we still have questions about that. Like, what does that mean? <laughs> I don't remember dying, okay? What does it mean? That's what we're going to study. But first, I want you to just see that it's stated as a reality. I want to go ahead and give you the quick answer from the very beginning. So that as we look at this, it's not total confusion. So here's the quick answer of how we have died with Christ. In the same way that in justification, God counted you as righteous, you're not actually righteous, not according to your lifestyle and behavior, but God regards you as that. God credited you as righteous. He counted you as righteous. It's written down in the books of heaven you're righteous and therefore you have it. In the same way, these are more things that God counts. God counts it. You are in Christ. When you were justified, God counts it that you have died with Christ. That when Jesus died to sin, he counts it that you died with him to sin. 
that you were buried and that you were risen with Christ. He counts it so. So we're going to do a lot more talking about that, but first just see it. Second indicative. In verse 3, we have been baptized into Christ Jesus. We've been baptized into Christ Jesus, even if you didn't know that before this moment. Number three, in verse four, it says we have been buried with Christ. That's a reality. Number four, in verse five, we are united with Christ. Even if you didn't know that you're united with Christ, you are. Number five, in verse six, we have been crucified with Christ. Number six, in verse six, we are no longer slaves to sin. Legally, there's a change that has taken place. Number seven, in verse 14, you are not under law, so not under the law of Moses, not under that covenant of works, but you are under grace, the grace of the new covenant. And then number eight, in verse 18, we are slaves of righteousness. So there are eight indicatives, eight realities that are in this passage, it's kind of depending on how you count, because I know some of them mean the same thing. Like it says, you've died with Christ and you've been crucified with Christ. It means the same things. But eight times in the passage, he uses this argument. So as to say, you've been crucified with Christ. Now, therefore, here's the reality of how we should live from that. Four of the eight that are in this passage are in this first paragraph, these first seven verses. And so this is what we're going to consider this morning. So the first point, the first reason that's given there is you have died to sin. That sums up everything that is in the first seven verses. But to explain that, he tells us three more. And so those were some of the ones that I gave you. So if you're taking notes, point number one is you have died to sin, and then there are going to be subpoints A, B, and C. Letter A is you've been baptized into Christ. So let's think on that for a bit. You look at it there in the text, verse 3. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? We're already at a little bit of a confusing part here. What does it mean that I've been baptized into Christ? See, we don't want to get too lost in the details because the, what we need to focus on, what we need to think on for just a little bit here is not the main point of the text, but we're not going to understand the main point if we don't understand the sentences that he uses. So I want to pause here for a bit and we need to just think on baptism and how this connects to what he's teaching, because there is a lot here. There's some great depth that comes out here. Here's a big question from the text. When he says that you have been baptized into Christ, is this talking about that time when you got into the water, your Christian water baptism? Is it talking about that? Or is it more of like a spiritual baptism? Because the Bible talks about that. Or is this just kind of speaking poetically, metaphorically, in some kind of way? The text is teaching that the justified Christian is united to Christ. So when were you united? At what moment did you become united to Christ? Was it at the moment of your baptism, or as I'm going to argue here, was it at the moment of faith? that we were united to Christ. Maybe to give a little bit of an example here. What of the child who responds to Christ, trusting Christ at the age of five, but then for some reason or another, they're not baptized until they're 10 years old? Here's the question. At what moment did they become united to Christ? Do you see the question there? So what is that moment that is there? Well, we've just spent five chapters seeing the Bible teach that faith, faith is what unites us to Christ. 
It's faith that brings the miracle. It's faith that justifies. It's faith that accomplishes this. It's no work. It's no physical action. Look back to chapter five, verse one, as one verse of many that we could look at. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's all kinds of talk about the fact that we're connected to Christ, attached to Christ by faith. Um, and so if that's the case, then why is it worded like this? As another example, the thief on the cross. Remember this? Thief on the cross turns to Christ in the moments before his death. He did not have the time or ability to climb down off of the cross and go be baptized or go do anything. So was he united to Christ? Well, absolutely, we believe this. And so it's for that reason that some have said, well, when chapter six here says we've been baptized into Christ, this must be speaking about spiritual baptism or just using it in kind of a poetic way. As a couple examples of that, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, we're told that all of us, so all believers, by one spirit have been baptized into Christ Jesus. And so what the Bible teaches is that at the moment of your conversion, you are flooded with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes upon you. You are baptized by the Holy Spirit. You don't see it. You may not have even known it happened, didn't feel anything change, but this is in the heavenly realm. Invisibly, this did happen. Another way that baptism is spoken of in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 10, you could flip there if you want to, I'm just gonna tell you what happens though. Paul is talking about Israel in the Old Testament. And he says that after the Exodus, so think of them, the Israelites, they're coming out of Egypt and they are making their way into the wilderness there. He says that they were all baptized into Moses. Now, what exactly does that mean? Because as you read the Bible, there was never a moment that they all like lined up at the Red Sea, you know, and somebody went through and dunked them all saying, I baptize you in the name of Moses and I baptize you in the name of Moses. Like that never happened. So what does it mean? Well, the verse follows it up with, they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. We have a, po we have a metaphorical symbolic kind of thing happening here. So picture Israel at the Red Sea. The Red Sea stands up in these walls. They pass through the water. They're passing through waters and they're following Moses, their leader. And so there is kind of a poetic symbolic way that they were attached and united to Moses as they passed through the water. So that's the Bible using this poetic kind of language. I, I, I know that that kind of thing can be confusing, other cultures don't have as much trouble with it as ours does. We, we like kind of that black and white kinds of thing that's there. But to read the Bible, we do have to learn to see metaphors and read poetic language in this. But you need to know that kind of thing exists. There is baptism of the Spirit. There is a metaphorical kind of baptism. And there is the baptism we undergo when we get in the water, a water baptism. So chapter six here. Which one is this talking about when it says we have been baptized into Christ Jesus? Which one is it? Well, the answer is I'm torn and so are all your heroes and commentators, okay? All of those guys you like to listen to, they all think different things. MacArthur thinks one thing, Piper thinks another, Matthew Henry thinks another, okay? So the, the gamut is split here as to what this is. There are quite a few who believe that this is talking about baptism of the Spirit because it speaks so um, just clearly and indefinitely that this has happened to everyone. And if we just spent five chapters seeing that faith is what unites us to Christ, then surely this is baptism of the Spirit. So some say this, and that would be convenient, but I want to tell you, I lean the direction of believing that this is talking about our water baptism, that this is the moment that we publicly profess faith in Christ. I just think that's the straightforward reading of the text. But then here's the question. If we know that the act of baptism does not justify you, the act of getting into those waters is not the thing that works a supernatural miracle, then why is it worded quite like this? Well, 
Consider the fact that we do the same thing with language kind of all the time. We just may not realize it. Uh, so for instance, we, we use a symbol of a thing, the sign of a thing to refer to the thing itself. Here's an example. Let's say you had a, a friend, a man, who began to flirt with a woman who was not his wife. And so you said to him, man, when you put on that wedding ring, you joined yourself to your wife. You made a covenant with your wife. Now, wait a second. Is it the putting on of a ring? Is that the thing that binds the covenant? Is that actually what unites in the covenant? At what exact moment are you united in marriage? Well, I can tell you, it ain't the ring part. That ring, okay, the moment that you put on that ring, and you maybe even said the words at your ceremony, with this ring, I thee wed. It's not that moment that you become husband and wife. In, in fact, you can be married and have no ring. It's just a symbol. It's just a sign, and it's a modern tradition. That ring is not the thing. So when is the moment that you are united? The Bible explains it's later after the ceremony, whenever you unite together sexually. That's the thing that cuts the covenant and unites the covenant together. The ring is just a sign. The ring is just a symbol, but we know what it means. So we could say to a guy, hey man, when you put that ring on, you made a covenant with your wife. And we can say, look, when you got into those waters of baptism, you joined yourself to Christ. So I believe that's what's happening here. I believe that's the teaching and what we see here. Um, as a quick side note here, and I think there are numerous to see in this passage, do notice that he speaks just categorically that if you are a Christian, you're going to be baptized. Like he doesn't leave room here for a population of the Christians who just don't want to. No, he just kind of speaks categorically. If you're a Christian, you're going to be baptized. Now, do we believe that there is grace if there, you know, the thief on the cross or a man who turned to Christ in the desert? That has happened historically and was unable to be baptized before he died. Or a man who's on his deathbed and he turns to Christ in faith, but he is physically unable. Do we believe God gives grace? Absolutely. But we can still use this language here that if you're a Christian, you're going to be baptized. There is no room here for the guy who just doesn't feel like it. I, I'm convinced the Bible would just address that man and say, don't you be telling me you're a Christian. Don't you be telling me that Jesus is Lord if you won't do what the Lord says, okay? And you notice that very often the Bible will put salvation and baptism very close together because baptism is the way that you show I have turned to follow Christ. It's put together so much that sometimes it can actually make us uncomfortable. And there have actually been some of these errors that came out that believed you have to be baptized in order to be saved, like somehow it completes your salvation. Well, it doesn't, but the Bible will speak those two so closely together. And so here's, here's maybe one of the next questions. So why does he use language like this? Why is baptism spoken in this kind of way? Baptism unites us to Christ. I, two reasons, I think. One is, it is meant to be the case that we are baptized very soon after believing the gospel. It's not meant to be this case. It's not meant to be like, I'm going to give myself 10 years to see if I reach these pinnacles of maturity. No, no, no. Very often in the book of Acts, people were baptized the same day, baptized the same day. The Ethiopian eunuch, he hears the gospel from Philip. They're riding in a chariot. They sees water and he says, let's do this. Is there anything that prevents me from being baptized right now? Philip says, no, you do notice Philip's not like, well, hey, first we got to go through a three-year Bible study, you know, just to make sure that you really, no, baptism is meant to be a way of demonstrating to the world, I've turned to follow Christ. Uh, that Philippian jailer is baptized the same night of his belief. Now, we generally make it our practice that when somebody wants to be baptized, turns to Christ, we get it on the calendar 
And then we do have some meetings together, but it's not like we think you got to reach some level of maturity before you're allowed to be baptized, okay? Baptism is meant to be very closely connected with turning to Christ. But a second reason why he would use language like this and that we need to see is this. Baptism pictures as the sign, it pictures all of these things that we're talking about. Baptism is a good sign of the covenant of salvation. It's a good one because it pictures this. Baptism was designed by God to picture the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and your participation in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Your union, your connection to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Christ was swallowed up by the waters of death. We can say Christ was baptized by death. He was buried in the earth and then he rose out of the grave, just like in baptism when done properly. We go under the waters representing death and burial. And then we rise up out of those waters picturing Christ's resurrection and my connection with Jesus's resurrection. My resurrection, it's picturing these things. The gospel is acted out as a drama in the act of baptism. Again, when it is done properly. Jesus died and rose. We have joined with him in his death and resurrection. Baptism is the declaration to the cosmos. It's a declaration to the cosmos. Not only the people who are gathered there and witness it. Not only to the people who hear about, oh, did you hear? He was baptized. It's not only to those who see the pictures on Facebook. It is also to the angels and the demons. It is a declaration to the cosmos. I am joined and attached to Christ. I have, gone, I have come to Christ. And so as another side point here, this is another reason why we are convinced that the only biblical baptism is baptism by immersion of disciples. This is yet another reason. I mean, there are many others. You know, first of all, if we just say, we're going to take our cues from the Bible. It's not okay to just make up what we want. We're going to take our cues from what God says. Biblically, historically speaking, we know the only way baptism was done in the Bible was by immersion. And listen, immersion of disciples. So even our brothers and sisters who see baptism differently and whom we love, whom we love, even those who baptize babies by sprinkling, they still know the only way baptism was done in the Bible was by immersion. They just believe that it doesn't matter how you do it so long as you do. We believe that it does matter. If Jesus did baptism in a certain way and said, go do this, go baptize disciples, we don't believe we have the right to change it. We don't have the right to alter it. Every time humans try to tamper with something God made, we, never in history have we ever made it better, okay? Yeah. God gave baptism and we think, hmm, I'm gonna make it better. No, we never make it better. We always corrupt it. We always mess it up. We change it in some way because think about this. Baptism was meant to picture a number of things. Acts tells us that baptism was meant to picture the washing away of sins. You lose that by sprinkling, okay? You, you, you don't sprinkle in order to get clean. You take a bath, okay? You get immersed. You were baptized with the Holy Spirit at conversion. You were not sprinkled with him. He flooded you. He came upon you. And the picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is lost by sprinkling. Listen, Jesus was not sprinkled by death. He was swallowed by death. Jesus was not sprinkled with the earth. He was buried in the earth. Jesus didn't dab off the wrath of God. 
He kicked open death's doors and he rose. Everything is missed if you change the way that baptism is done. If you change, we talk about the mode, the way that it's done. If you change the mode, you change the meaning. Jesus gave us baptism for the reason that he did so we would see these pictures. And so I, I feel like we have to understand those things in order to get the point that is being made here because what baptism is saying is, I've joined with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. So side points over, here's the point. Water baptism pictures Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and pictures the fact that I have joined with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. Maybe one of the points to see after all that is your baptism is a big deal. It, it is. In our modern times, there has been a lot of downplaying um, of baptism and really of everything that is kind of mystical in our naturalistic age. There's been a, a great downplaying of the meaning and significance of a great deal of the Bible. And sometimes people can kind of get so smart, they think they've outsmarted God, you know, to say some things like, well, look, I know the baptism doesn't actually save, so I don't need to do it. Okay. You tried to just outsmart Jesus and it never works. Okay. Your baptism matters. It's a big deal. It's a big deal that we picture these things and we show this participation. So you, Christian, you were baptized into Christ Jesus. Let's come to the second subpoint, and we're still coming to the place where we'll see these things. Obviously, these next two are going to go much, much quicker. Look at verse 5. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of, his, likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Scripture says you have been united with Christ. This union is another indicative. It's another reality that exists whether you've ever realized it or not. You who are justified, you are attached to Christ. You are joined to Christ in covenant. There's an old saying that you can take two cats, tie their tails together, hang them over a clothesline and watch them fight. And you will see union, but not necessarily unity. Union is what exists even if they don't like it. A husband and wife have union, even if they don't have unity and harmony with one another. But the covenant brings them to union. And what the Bible is teaching is you who are justified, you have union with Christ, even if, even on the days you don't feel like it. You ever have those days you don't feel close to God? Your union with Christ is not just your affections. It's not just that you feel good and feel close to God on some days. No, no, no. Your union exists whether you realize it or not and whether you feel like it or not. You are joined to Christ in covenant. How is a husband and wife united together? Like we realize that marriage is not just two people who decide to be roommates and have sex. We realize that there's something deeper that's there. The people of the world who want to live together and not be married, they know there's something that is deeper than just roommates. Even if they say all the times, oh, marriage is nothing, it's just a piece of paper. Then why are you so afraid of it? Okay, We realize there's something deeper than just friends, than just roommates. What is it? It's the covenant. This is how God made the world. God made marriage. Marriage is a covenant union where they're joined together. Well, you who are in Christ, you who are justified, you are attached to Christ in covenant. You are joined to him. You are bonded to him. Uh, you are connected to him. You are connected to him in a similar kind of way uh, that marriage exists. In fact, that's the metaphor. That's an illustration that is used of that. But your union to Christ is actually deeper, stronger, and longer lasting than marriage. 10,000 years from now, from this moment, you will have been living in union with Christ for about 9,950 years longer than you were in union with your spouse because marriage is not eternal. Marriage is lifelong. This union is so real and so strong that Jesus used the metaphor of a body together. 
kind of hard to be attached more closely than your arm is to your body. We are the body of Christ. There is union that is there. And so that truth, that indicative, you are united to Christ. It is used at parts of the Bible to say some things that are very comforting, some hope-giving ramifications like, don't you ever think that Jesus is going to forget to bring you into his kingdom? You're attached to him. You're joined to him. But it is also used to do things and say things like this. 1 Corinthians 6. Don't go bringing yourself into sinful situations. Don't you know you're attached to Christ? Um, the language of being in Christ is used all through the New Testament. Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Here's the third indicative, third subpoint. We have been crucified with Christ. Look at verse six, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. So we saw that we've died to sin with Christ. We've, we're united with Christ. This is saying we have been crucified with Christ. So how does that work? How does it work that I was crucified with Christ? Well, the short answer is because God said so. In the same way that you were counted as righteous, God has counted it that because you are attached to Christ, that when Jesus died, it's like you died. When Jesus was buried, it's like you brought your old man, your old unconverted self into the tomb and he got buried and yet when Jesus rose, it's like you rose again. We are counted this way in the eyes of God. And when God says something, that's the rule of law. That's the rule of the cosmos. Look, one last illustration that I'll use here. I was very deeply moved um, when I attended the Lundy's adoption here several months back. And as I was in that courtroom there were a number of truths from the book of Romans that were just like very much standing out. And there's one of them that just hit very strongly. As I was in that courtroom, all of us were gathered and we're waiting on the judge to walk in. And it was kind of a dramatic, powerful moment when the man with authority marched in. Something was about to happen that nobody else in that room could do. A man was about to declare things by his authority. And after he declared them, they would be the rule of law. So we're in there, we're waiting. The judge marches in and it just, it just hit me very strongly. In one moment, those children did not technically belong to Jordan and Brittany. Now we know they love them like they did, but according to the rule of law, according to technicalities, they did not belong to them. But then in the next, they were theirs. They were the children of Jordan and Brittany. Their last names changed in an instant. What happened? The judge declared it so. The one with authority, the one with the rule of law declared it so, and that became reality. Listen, Christian, <laughs> you who are in Christ, there is a world of things that happened at the moment you trusted Christ, the living God, the one with authority, the one with the rule of law over the cosmos spoke things and declared them so. You were not in Christ and then you were in Christ. You were not accepted by him and then you were accepted by him. You were outside of him and then adopted as sons and daughters and God counted it. That when Jesus died, it's like you died. When Jesus was buried, it's like you were buried. And when Jesus was rose, it was like you rose. You have died with Christ. You have been crucified with Christ. That's the indicative. It's the reality, even when we don't realize it. Now the imperative that the text goes on to make, and this will be future weeks that we study this, but down in verses 11 and 12, when it says, even so consider yourselves, part of what it is saying is change the way you think to match the reality of the cosmos. God has made you united with Christ. Therefore, get your thinking 
in line with that. If God counts this so, well, then by golly, you better count it so. We need to order our thoughts to match these truths. So you, Christian, you are dead to sin. Get it into your head. Make it part of your thinking. Sin, that's the old me. I'm new in Christ. I have a new way of life. I have a new way of living. All the parts of disobedience, that's who I used to be. I am now a new kind of person in Christ. In the weeks to come, we'll do a lot more studying of the application of how we apply this to our lives. But the Bible begins with, see the reality. You are in Christ, dead to sin and alive to God. You who have not yet joined yourself to Christ. By realizing that you must be saved, realizing that you must turn to him to receive eternal life, praying to confess Jesus as Lord, understand that unless you are united to Jesus's death and resurrection, you're not okay. And you really are facing an eternity of hell. You must be joined to him in covenant. If there is no union to Christ, then there is no union or entrance to Christ's kingdom. You must be joined to him by faith. Look to Christ, call out to him, profess your faith, ask him to save you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, thank you for the thousands of miracles you have worked as part of your salvation. Lord, we've studied these things. I pray that the depth of understanding of them will grow. And Lord, that the transformation of thinking will take place. Bring us to where we think like this, O God. Father, we pray your blessing on us. We leave. Have mercy on us, O God. And we ask all this through Christ. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed and were deeply affected by this week's message titled, United with Christ and Dead to Sin. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.